Welcome to the Bethel Church Austin Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this sermon by a special guest speaker. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit BethelATX.com. Sometimes people introduce you and you're like, I thought I was speaking next. <laughs> wow, must have another speaker. Um, I, I'm going to give away a few um, books, a couple books. I don't know if you were here uh, during the, one of the other sessions, but this is the latest book I've written, Poverty, Riches, and Wealth. And um, it's about poverty, riches, and wealth. <laughs> That's why I wrote it. And, uh, you know, if you don't like wealth, you're not going to like heaven. Because, you know, heaven is gold streets, pearl gates, you know what I'm saying? You know, if wealth was inherently evil, can you imagine Jesus describing heaven as wealth? You know, if there was like, if wealth was inherently bad, like if it was like marijuana, (laughs) opium, can you imagine Jesus saying like, heaven's like opium fields and marijuana gardens, you know? (laughs) In California, they're like, I would go there for sure. If that I'm going there. So, uh, anyway, this is a good word. Who would like to have this? Awesome. We got some to sell out there. Mary, you want to take this to someone? Um, this book is uh, called Moral Revolution, The Naked Truth About Sexual Purity, and it's about sex. So, uh, it wouldn't be for Christians. <laughs> we don't believe in sex. You know, uh, I think this is like probably the most important book I've ever written. It was my second book that I, that I wrote. And you know, um, it's crazy because I believe that the world perverts sex and, the, and, and religion and, and religion shames it, but the kingdom celebrates it. And I think that oftentimes, you know, when our kids go through puberty, they, they get this message that they're not supposed to have a sex drive. And you know the reason why you have a sex drive years before God wants you to have sex is because the value of your virginity is in the blood, is in the blood sweat, and tears that it takes to get your virginity from the battlefield all the way to the honeymoon suite. So on the night that you lay with your lover, you have something to give that you had to fight to keep. Because anyone can give away something expensive, but only people who understand sacrifice can give away something valuable. And so I think this is a, a really current message. If you have young people or old people, <laughs> or maybe if you're one of those people that you're trying to have the talk and you're like, okay, let me read a book to you. <laughs> Mary, why don't you give that to somebody? And uh, the last one is, I think we only have audiobooks in this now, Destined to Win. I think we just have the audiobook left. And uh, this is all about... Um, that you're, that you're called to win. <laughs> anyway, these titles are really difficult. And uh, oftentimes, Mary, you can give that to somebody. Oftentimes, you know... Uh, <laughs> that was coming. You know, how many times have you told someone God has a plan for your life? And how many times have they asked, what is it? I don't know. So I wrote that book actually in response to 
Rick Warren's book, Purpose Driven Life, because I feel like Rick's book is amazing, and you finish that book realizing, like, I have a purpose for being here. I have no idea what it is. I have no idea how to find it. And I've had hundreds and hundreds of students ask the question, like, how do I actually know what I'm supposed to be doing? And so that's that book. So if you have, if you're, if you're trying to figure out what you're supposed to do, let me give you a little hint. You can't find your purpose without finding your people. Uh, let me try that again. I'm saying you can't find your purpose without your people because you don't have a purpose without the body. Like if you're a hand, you might be the best hand in the world. But if, you know, you may, it might be good for you to like know the knee, but if you don't have a relationship with the arm, you don't have a purpose. So part of the challenge is that we're in a very independent world where people have lost connection. And when you lose connection, you lose purpose because your purpose is always in other people. I'm saying if, you don't have, if your vision isn't bigger than you, you don't have God's. Okay, well, anyway, that didn't go too good, but you gave me 39 minutes. Can you? Is that supposed to be a light sermon? Very light sermon. Okay, so let's pray. If you grab a hand, hopefully by tonight you're sitting strategically, right next to the man of your dreams. We'll pray slow. This is probably the most exciting part of my gatherings. Holy Ghost. So thank you, Lord, for what you're about to do tonight. And Lord, we pray that they would be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth with babies after they're married. And Lord, we pray that you would just bless our minds, our brains, our spirits tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, we've been talking about an apostolic restoration uh, for the last uh, day and a half, and I, I want to talk about the, the uh, moving from fatherlessness to fathering, fatherhood. And uh, it's a message that the Lord gave me, and I really feel like this is a prophetic declaration for our time. So it's a little different than what we've been talking about the last couple of sessions, but I think it's powerful. If you'll turn to Malachi chapter 4, we'll start here. Malachi... Is, uh, gosh, there's such. Let's see if I can fix this. That's better. It doesn't make my butt look so big either. <laughs> Let me just read Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I'm going to, behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he'll restore the hearts of fathers to their children. And hearts of children to their fathers, so that I may not come and smite the land with the curse. This is really interesting because Malachi looks to the future and he sees a particular kind of issue. He says, he sees not, Malachi perceived a world absent of fatherhood, but not absent of fathers. And I don't know if you know this, but this is the most fatherless generation in the history of the world, in which our fathers did not die in war. What I'm getting at is this. In the Civil War, 687,000 men died in the Civil War. Men died in the Civil War. Not women, men. It took two decades for fathering to come back in homes because our fathers were dead. 
But this is the most fatherless generation in the history of the world in which our fathers are alive, but they're not home. Are you with me? And so the question becomes, what is the problem and what is the antidote? Now, before we talk about the problem, I want to tell you that Malachi had a specific antidote in that he said, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet. And what is he going to do? He's going to restore the hearts of fathers to sons or fathers to children and children to fathers. And isn't it interesting that Malachi's resolution to a fatherless generation is a prophetic movement? I don't know about you, but when I think of the restoration of fatherhood, I don't think of prophets. <laughs> and yet, his solution, his prophetic solution 2,500 years ago was there's a fatherless generation, and before there was ever a problem, God already had an answer. He's going to send Elijah the prophet, and he's going to turn the hearts. A prophetic movement is going to shift the hearts, and there's going to be a spirit of reconciliation, but it's coming out of a prophetic movement. Well, first of all, I just want to say this, that I do think that much of the prophetic movement that's happened in the 20th and 21st century is much more Old Covenant than New Covenant. And I do think that God wants to shift our prophetic movement because how many know 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if many man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away and all things become new. What's the next verse? And God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. The next verse says, and we've received the ministry of what? Reconciliation, as if God was begging through us, be reconciled to God. Are you with me? It's funny because Elijah, in the Old Testament, what did Elijah do? In the Old Testament, Elijah called down fire, killed false prophets, cursed nation. But what happens when you take an Old Testament prophet and you move him on the other side of the cross? Are you even with me? I don't know what you're doing tonight. Like... What, what the heck is that? <laughs> Guys are armed. What, would, what happens when you take an Old Testament prophet? Elijah was an Old Testament prophet. But he says, in the last days, when? Help me. In the last days, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet. What happens when you take Elijah and you move him from this side of the cross to this side of the cross? On this side of the cross, he called down fire, killed false prophets, cursed nations. But when you take Elijah and you move him to the other side of the cross, suddenly he is the catalyst to reconciling families. I'm simply saying some of us are, we're on this side of the cross, but we brought this, <laughs> we brought the old covenant ministry into the new covenant and we're using the prophetic ministry not to reconcile people, but to curse them. So the first thing I want to say is, we got to shift to new covenant prophetic ministry. Oh no, I'm right about that. Some people are like, well, how about Ananias and Sapphira? Well, how about Ananias and Sapphira? Well, God killed them. What did he kill them for? Lying. Who's interviewing them? 
Peter. The most famous liar in the New Testament. <laughs> Have you ever noticed, like, they lied about how much they sold the property for? He lied three times about knowing Jesus. After Jesus warned him. I don't think Peter has any idea that Ananias is going to die. Until he did. And then Sapphira, of course. And what's my point? My point is sometimes we take an exception. Like, for instance, in this church, if God killed people for lying, how many of you would be alive? I'm thinking just me and Renee. And I'm not sure about Renee, to be frank. You get my point. Like, you want to make a big deal about Ananias and Sapphira? You better be careful, because ain't nobody in here has never lied. Not me. Well, yeah, you're lying right there. There's your... And my point would be this. How many of you know... In fact, I was at a, a, a prophetic roundtable, but it wasn't round. I don't know. Why do they call those roundtables? Like, I thought there was going to be like six of us around like the Knights of the Shining Armor or something, and it was like 40 of us sitting like this. Here's the first problem. But everyone had 10 minutes, and they could stand up and share what their, you know, what their prophetic declaration was for the season. And, and I, I was the only happy prophet they, they brought. As a matter of fact, when I saw the invitation and who else was going, I wrote to them and I said, I don't, did you notice? Like, I don't fit here. And he wrote back and said, that's why we invited you. So a prophet stood up and he said, you know, he had his 10 minutes and he said, I believe that God's bringing back the days of Ananias and Sapphira. And I shouted, God bless America. And everybody was like, the wrong guy was in favor of that. <laughs> On the, so he talked for a minute, and then he said, hey, Valentin, why? I said, because thousands of people lied, and only two people died for it. And the whole New Testament, thousands of people died, lied, but only two people died. That's grace. But the challenge is, is that we make a culture out of the exception. And I said that. They didn't welcome me. Anyway, I left early, but <laughs> I really did. <laughs> I called my PA, and I'm like, you need to get me out of here before they, <laughs> they stone the <laughs> false prophet. Anyway, <laughs> then Bethel would be a nonprofit corporation, you know. But on a serious note, Malachi sees a prophetic move that reconciles families as the answer to this trauma or drama of fathers who are alive but aren't home. Sons and daughters who are alive but not connected. Interesting, I want to just tell you this, this side note. Uh, this is two weeks ago, three weeks ago now, on a Sunday morning, Bill was preaching, and he said, I'd like you to lead the prayer time. So I got up, and when I went to pray, probably five minutes before I went to pray, I heard this word, this, this, this phrase in my mind, prepare for reentry. Prepare for reentry. 
And I'm like, okay, immediately like, okay, I got a couple minutes to think about what does this mean, prepare for reentry. And I said to the Lord, like, what does this mean, prepare for reentry? He said, like the prodigal father, the prodigal son's father, he prepared for reentry. So I got up and I, and I said, hey, this is the word, da da da, prepare for reentry. Everybody got up. Who's got people that, who's got sons, daughters, mothers, fathers, da da da, raise your hand. Almost everybody in the room. All right, let's just proclaim this over us. Prepare for reentry. And we just said, and I said to them, maybe some of you have to have prophetic acts, the robe, ring, sandals, the fattened cap, you know, the whole thing. Like, we're preparing, we're watching. While we're praying, we're looking for the prodigal to come home, but we're doing prophetic acts behind the scenes. We're preparing for reentry. Well, two hours later, I, I, I'm on my way home, and my phone, my phone, my text uh, you know, rings, and it's my grandson who isn't walking with the Lord. And it says, his first line, Papa, I'm not, I'm not living right. Next line, I need to talk to you. Can we have lunch? Anyway, that resulted in three days later, he goes to the school ministry. He's not even walking with the Lord, so, you know, we had to use a little executive privilege. I don't even have a parking spot, but at least I got my grandkid in school. But anyway, he comes to school. Second day, gets rocked. He says, electricity was flowing through my body. Four days ago, yeah, four days ago now? Four days ago, I get a text from him. Hey, Papa, can I come talk to you? Like, something weird happened to me. I'm like, oh, good weird or bad weird? He said, good. I said, okay, you can come see me. <laughs> and like a minute and a half later, he's there, so he must have been outside the gate. So. And he's like, you're never going to believe what happened to me. I'm like, trust me, I've been doing this for a long time. I was in school, and they said, let's worship, and then... All of a sudden, I was stuck to my chair. He looks at me and he goes, I couldn't move. Like, like as if I'd never heard it. I couldn't move. And then, and then I started laughing. And then I'm like, I said, I'm asking myself, why are you laughing? And he said, I, I can't stop laughing. And then, and then pretty soon I'm shaking. And he goes, I'm shaking. And I'm not even cold. And, and then he said, I'm going to try and stop shaking. Then I couldn't. Then I... Anyway, so then he said, yeah, I had my eyes closed the whole time, and then I opened my eyes, and everyone was gone. I thought half an hour passed, and it was two hours, and everyone left, except for a girl. Then she looked at me and said, Isaac, can I pray for you? And he said, sure. So he said, she prayed for me, and I fell on the floor. <laughs> and then he said, I was awake but asleep. And then he said, someone grabbed my chest and ripped my chest open, and bad stuff came out, and good stuff came in. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. And he goes, weird. <laughs> anyway, he's over almost every night with weird stuff that Jesus is just doing something amazing. And, you know, if you have a wayward son, grandson, husband, wife, whatever, you know, you should just receive that for yourself. We can borrow each other's prophetic words, you know what I'm saying? Prepare for reentry right there. Hey, you know, side note, I know I'm way in the weeds, but I just, I, I'm writing this little thing, uh, this book called uh, A Fatherless Generation, but I was uh, reading the prodigal son story. Did you notice that the, the prodigal father, you know, the father, he did not put the robe, ring, and sandals on his, 
on the prodigal son. Did you notice that? He gave it to the, to the community, and the community put it on him. I never noticed that. The father did not put the robe, ring, and sandals. He created a community that walked him back. It wasn't just the father that welcomed him back. The whole community welcomed him back. That's a good word. Okay. Can we please get back to this? Thank you. Most fatherless generation in history. So the question becomes, why? Like, why are we the most fatherless generation in history? And I'd like to propose that the 60s revolution, this all began, in my mind, with the 60s revolution. And you know the motto, if you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. You know what that meant, right? It meant have sex with whoever you want, make no commitments, make no covenants. It's all about having fun. And out of that whole thing, climax, Woodstock, August 1969, it was the icon of a decade of drug, sex, and rock and roll. It began what we called the sexual revolution, when people began to have sex. Now, were people having sex outside of marriage? Of course they were. Of course they were. But how many understood, how many understand that they knew what they were doing was wrong? Even the culture told them it was wrong. But what happened in the 60s? Suddenly, what everyone knew was wrong was suddenly questioned. And suddenly, you're no longer the girl, the guy. Now, you just do it, and you brag about it, and it's a culture. And in the midst of the sexual revolution, we had the introduction of Darwinism into the public school. Now, let me be clear. Darwinism was, began around 1800s and 1800s, and in 1920, the American school system actually, actually um, put in, uh, Darwinism in our textbooks. But... No, it never, it never actually took root in our, in the minds of our, of our, of our children, in the minds of our, of our society, until the sexual revolution. Because in the sexual revolution, people were living like hell and still wanting to go to heaven. <laughs> or let me say, they were living like hell and not even wanting to answer to heaven. And Darwinism was the perfect answer to I want to live however I want to live, and I want no accountability to the God who holds me to judgment day. So Darwinism really took root in the school. No matter what you think about evolution, Darwinism did two things. The first thing it did is it taught us that we were not created in the image of God. In other words, instead of believing that we were actually sons and daughters of God, higher than the animals, filled with the Spirit of God, and born in the likeness and image of God, we were taught we are just an intelligent ape. That's the first thing it did. The second thing it did is it said that we are a cosmic accident. That we are, we are, we started with an amoeba, and the, it's just the, it's just this cosmic amoeba group, you know the story, depending on what kind of evolution that you believe in. And the challenge there is, the second thing it did, is it took away purpose. We ask each other like, why am I born? How many of you know that if you're a cosmic burp? 
You don't have a purpose. You're just the, you're, you're, you're just the survival of the fittest. I, I think evolution's kind of funny. I think you have to have a lot of faith to believe in evolution. <laughs> Can you imagine? It's like two Volkswagens crashed into each other and a Corvette drove out. He's like, how did that happen? Over billions of years. Have you ever thought of this? Like, if you just add a billions of years to, to the phrase, it sounds logical. Oh, yeah, billions of years. Why didn't I think of that? And, you know, there was a big bang. And then, you know, and, and I understand there could have been a big bang. But when you believe in evolution without a creator, I ask where you get the bang. Because the problem is that if you believe in evolution without a creator, you have to borrow God's material to have a bang. <laughs> you didn't get that, but anyway, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's like, where did you get the elements to have a bang? Are you following me? Well, first there was the elements. Wait a second, you just borrowed God el God's elements. <laughs> what was before that? <laughs> well, brother, it was billions of years. <laughs> dang me, dang me, take a rope and hang me. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and Darwinism, basically, the motto of Darwinism, as you know, was eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's well, the model of Darwinism. And what happened is that people began to have a completely, totally immoral lifestyle. In 1950, less than 5% of all children were born out of wedlock in America. Less than 5%, 4.7, I think. By 2017, that number rose by 1,700%. Get this. Today, 71% of black children, 50% of ha uh, Hispanic children, and 39% of Caucasian children are now born out of wedlock. When you put them all together, more than 50% of Americans' children are born without a daddy. If this was a disease, it wouldn't be an epidemic. It'd be a panademic. Did you get what I just said? I said over 50% of all the children in America are born outside of marriage. What's the result? I'll read you this story called the elephant story. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but it's a great story. Some years ago, officials at Kruger National Park and Game Reserve in South Africa were faced with a growing elephant problem. The population of African elephants once endangered had grown larger than the park could sustain. So measures had to be taken to thin the ranks. And what they did is, did you get what I just read? So they had these elephant, these African elephants, and they weren't endangered, but then they started breeding them in Kruger Park. I've been to Kruger Park, by the way, beautiful park, been there three times. And they started breeding the African elephant on purpose, and what happened is, is that they took over the park. So they're like, hey, we need to take some of these big elephants, and we need to, like, ship them to other parks, you know, but you can't really UPS them. <laughs> and so they were like, how are we going to get these elephants to this other park in South Africa? And they decided to um, put harnesses around them and lift them with helicopters. And uh, it worked fine, except for the adult big bull elephants. It kept breaking the harnesses. 
So the, consequently, they're like, what are we going to do with the big bull elephants, the, the adult big bull elephants? And they said, well, that's okay. We, you know, we, we can just move some of the smaller elephants, the female elephants, the younger male elephants, and it'll be fine. So they did that. And then something happened. A few months went by, and that park that they moved those younger and female elephants to started to have an epidemic of the white rhinoceros that was endangered. They began to die. And they didn't know why, and they were like, why is the white elephant, why is the rhinoceros dying? And, and they, they did it. They brought in all these scientists, and after a little while, they figured out that, the, that they all had a, a bore in the side of their belly, like they had been they had been speared. So they put up cameras thinking that someone was coming and spear them. But the thing, thing is, is that the rhinoceroses, well, when, when uh, poachers come in, they actually take the tusks, and the tusks weren't gone. So it was very, comp, the comp, like, what's going on? What, very complex. So they put up these cameras to see what was going on with the rhinoceroses. And what they found was the young male elephants were actually gording and killing the rhinoceroses. Now, the, the way the story goes is the rhinoceroses and elephants, they are not natural enemies. So they were like, this is really strange. Like, we've never seen in the wild elephants and rhinoceroses actually be enemies. So they started studying the problem. They're like, gosh, why, what could this be? Why is this happening? And they said, well, the only thing that we can think of is that we put the juvenile elephants in the new park but we didn't put the adult male elephants in the park because we couldn't get them there. So they made some stronger harnesses, and they shipped a bunch of the large male adult bull elephants into the park. And within just a couple of months, all the killing stopped. And I want to read you what they said. They said, to test the theory, the rangers constructed bigger, stronger harnesses and they flew in some of the older bull elephants left at Kruger. Within weeks, the bizarre, violent behavior of the juvenile elephants stopped completely. The older bull elephants let, the, let them know that their behavior was not elephant-like at all. In a short time, the younger elephants were following the older elephants, the older, more dominant elf, uh, bulls around. Let me read it again. The younger elephants were following the older, more dominant bull elephants around while learning how to be elephants. <laughs> Let me ask you, like, so when you take bull elephants out of an environment, what happens? The young juvenile elephants get violent. And they actually, I didn't read the whole article, but it talks about the reason why they got violent. It was all about managing their, their mating cycles and all this kind of stuff. And the bull elephants brought this, this if you will, this peace. They brought, they brought discipline to the young bull elephants. What happens when you take fathers out of a culture? What happens when you take human fathers out of a culture? Now, when I started, when the Lord gave me this message, I had no statistics. And when I started looking up the statistics, I could not figure out why every politician, every government person, every school teacher isn't shouting I found the problem. I am not kidding you. I, this, it was a prophetic message, and I thought, well, I should probably see if there's some statistics. And I started looking up the statistics, and I'm like, oh, my goodness. How come no one is talking about this? 
Let me give you just a few of them. And there are just, there's just so many of them. 90% of all American inmates are men. 75 to 90% of all inmates grew up without a father. Now, why is it 75 to 90%? Because I did some research, and this was the only statistic that wasn't clear. Some said 70, 72, some, I'm sorry, some said 77, some said 80. And when I got in statistic, it was because of what they defined as fatherlessness. So some homes had no father, some fathers, some homes, some sons, I'm sorry, some of the men had fathers, but the father was disconnected. So it's just depend on the, so, but at least 75% of all inmates grew up without a father. Are you with me? Get this, 63% of all youth suicides are from fatherless homes. That's according to the health, the U.S. Health Department census. It's five times the average. Let me back up and say it again. 63% of all youth suicides are from fatherless homes. It's five times the average. 90% of all homeless runaway children are from fatherless homes. 32 times the average. 85% of all children who show behavioral disorders come from fatherless homes 20 times the average, and that's from the center of disease control, disease control. 80% of all rapes come from fatherless homes, 14 times the average. Get this one, 71% of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes, nine times the average, and that's just a few. What happens when you take fathers out of homes? (laughs) Total chaos. Why is, you were talking about homelessness. You know, I don't know what what you guys talk about in Texas as far as like what your situations are, but in California, we're talking about homelessness, Seattle, homelessness, New York, homelessness. And then you look at the statistics, it's like, how come no one's talking about fatherlessness? Like fatherlessness is the reason why people are homeless. You talk about rape. You talk about morals. You talk about morality. It's, it's almost all coming from fatherless homes. Boy. Okay. What's my point? Men and women aren't the same. Here we go. See, you're in Texas, so you still know this. I'm being honest. In a California school system... In 2016, we passed a legislation for, get this, genderless curriculum. You can't use he and she in curriculum anymore. You must use us and them. And in 2019, we implemented the curriculum, which was just four months ago. So four months ago, we got to actually read the curriculum that passed at 2016. And now we are trying to create a genderless society. (laughs) Okay, Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God fashioned into a woman. Oh, let's read it in here. Are you guys okay? This is going to be painful. I'm so sorry. (laughs) I'll try to, like, make you laugh right before you get stabbed. Okay, so the Lord looks for a suitable helper. You know the story. God creates Adam. He makes them both male and female. And then he says Adam's alone. And he looks for a helper among the animals. You remember this? Actually, among the living creatures. 
And by the way, uh, just so you know, the word helper there is used 16 times in the Bible. Three times for a woman and 13 times for God. So God's not looking for a slave. And he's looking for a suitable helper. And the word suitable means opposite of, corresponding to. So God looks, looks, looks. And you know the story, Adam names the animals, and he doesn't find a suitable helper. And I could take the rest of the evening on that. I wrote a whole book about it. And then finally the Lord, it says this, that there was no, helper, no suitable helper found for Adam. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon man, slept, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs close to his flesh out of that place. In verse 22, and the Lord fashioned into a woman, everybody say woman, the rib which he had taken from the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. Okay, stop for a minute. Where was the woman? If the woman was taken out of the man, this is deep. Where was the woman? It was in the man. The woman was in the man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his, and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Okay, what's happening here? So Adam, Adam was both male and female. Now, this is too, too long to talk about tonight, so you're just going to have to trust me that I'm right about this. <laughs> I don't believe that Adam was alone. I believe that Adam was lonely. If Adam was alone, it's very odd that God is looking for someone to reproduce among the animals. Because God already said eight times in Genesis 1, let every creature reproduce after its kind. So I believe Adam's lonely. God's not looking for someone to reproduce with because the first commandment to Adam was be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And how many understand that if there was no female Adam, then there was no way to reproduce. So God looks for a, a helpmate. He doesn't find one. He puts Adam to sleep, and he takes the woman out of the man, which means the woman must have been in the man, right? Because the only way you can take the woman out of the man is to have the woman in the man. Adam wakes up. Now, this, this part, okay, this part's not Bible. This is my rendition of it. Well, I mean, it could be the Bible, but it doesn't say that. So I have people all the time saying, the woman wasn't the man. I said, well, it says the woman was in the man, so... Well, it doesn't mean that. Like, okay, well, I'll believe the Bible. <laughs> I believe that Adam wakes up from his sleep, which that part's in the Bible. And when he wakes up, he sees what was in him in front of him. And he begins to prophesy that he wants it back. <laughs> She's bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. Therefore, why for? Because she was taken out of me, I want her back. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. I don't think he was saying, you know, we'll, we'll leave my, I'll leave my father's house and move in with your parents. <laughs> He's prophesying who will pursue who. The man will be the pursuer. You'll be adored. You'll be pursued. You're the one who's beautiful. By the way, only two creatures called beautiful in the entire Bible. Women and Lucifer. 
Oh, you missed the point. <laughs> Satan was never called beautiful. Lucifer was. Why do you think he hates you, women? Okay, where am I going? We hear people say, oh, you just need to get in touch with your feminine side. You don't have one, men. It was taken out of you. It's in the woman. As a matter of fact, from this day on, God never counts women in a crowd. There was 5,000 men. There was 3,000 men. Why? Because God said the two will become one. Do you know the Greeks don't even have a word for, for a woman? They only have a word for wife? You know they, only have, they don't have a word for man? They only have a word for husband? Because the Greeks were so convinced you were, you were born to be married that they didn't have a word for you unmarried. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> What's my point? My point is that a man is not a woman. Men and women aren't the same. We're being told you, you could have two, two daddies or you could have two mommies because we're genderless. And I'm like, that's, let me just put it the way the Bible. <laughs> that's bull crap is the way we say it in California. But one of the greatest challenges of this generation is that we're so afraid of stereotypes that we've rejected role models. Remember, I'm the guy who wrote Fashion Durant. Ladies, what am I about to say? When God creates physical distinctions, he fashions triune attributes that synergistically enhance the strength of those characteristics. God never creates a physical characteristic in creation without it affecting their divinely appointed role in life. In fact, God first determines our divine purpose and then designs us with all the characteristics it takes so that to be successful in apprehending our divine destiny. What does that mean? I love what uh, Lou Ingalls said. God says, Lou Ingalls said, God doesn't take a man and put a dream in him. God has a dream, and he wraps a man around him. What I'm saying is this, is God doesn't just give women breasts. The breasts, his physical, their physical characteristics, are a manifestation of the nature that God created in a woman. She has breasts because she has a nurturing nature. You're like, men can't nurture? Oh, please, let's not even go there. <laughs> this is why we end up in the weeds. <laughs> Women are more peaceful. <laughs> okay. Okay, 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 let's back up. How many wars 
have women started in the history of the world? I said none, and historian came up and corrected me. He said two, but he couldn't remember who they were or when they happened. My point. Why do women typically not start wars? Because they carried every single human for nine months in their womb. So their nature isn't, I'll kill you if I don't agree with you. Because not only are they nurturers, but they're inherently more compassionate. You're like, you don't know my mama. I understand where we're going here. <laughs> I can feel it in here. I know where we're going. <laughs> they are more compassionate, and they tend to be peacemakers. Why? For one, I just said, they carried every single human being. A man has never carried a human being in their womb. They don't have a womb. I'm saying, it, I'm saying God didn't just design them with a the womb. He gave them compassion, and he gave them the role as peacekeepers, peacemakers. And, and, and they're also physically weaker and slower. Oh. <laughs> I'm always afraid I'm going to get outside and some woman's going to kick my butt. Okay, okay, let, let me give you just a little, I understand, like, I'm talking about, <laughs> like, faster, and I'm talking about weaker and slower in the sense of, like, mud wrestling and, <laughs> okay, well, there's a reason why men and women don't run against each other in the Olympics, or they compete in separate events because women are 10% slower at average and they're 15% difference in strength. That's just a statistic. Now, I know we all know somebody that can kick any of our butts in here. I get it, but we're talking about wide brushstroke. Women are inherently weaker physically. And, you know, I, I understand it depends on how you measure weakness. For instance, m women have muscles in places men don't. <laughs> I've never seen a man give birth to anything. <laughs> so they're like, we have muscles in our guts. And I'm like, I get it. I know. I, I watched it happen three times. My wife was in labor. I've, I've never worked that hard in my life. <laughs> Women. So when God makes a creature weaker, and in the way that I'm describing... Okay, thank you. It's helpful. Whenever God makes a creature a certain way, he gives them other elements to protect them. Women are intuitive. They're inherently better negotiators. Why? Because they've had to negotiate to work their way through a world in which the, the men are stronger, physically stronger. So women... God gave women another characteristic, and that characteristic is intuition, like we joke about it, but it's true. Let me tell you, if you go to any church and call for the prophetic people, I'd like to meet with the prophetic people. If there's 100 of them, 80 of them will be women. If you call for the intercessors, and there's 100 of them, 90 of them will be women. You know why? Not because men don't pray, but because women are intuitive. They're much more intuitive. I'm saying God 
get, took away some of this, but he gave them some of that. Are you with me? So God never gives you characteristics. God never gives you a physical characteristic that doesn't have a corresponding spiritual, emotional, destiny characteristic. Does that make sense? Okay. So men are generally physically stronger. With their physical strength, God created a sense of responsibility in men for three things. Protect, promote, provide. You're saying women can't work. Please, let's not even do this. <laughs> I'm simply saying that God doesn't just give men attributes. He also gives them responsibility for those attributes. Are you with me? I'm trying to point out that men and women aren't the same. What are the, I want to tell you six side effects of fatherlessness. Are you still stay with me long enough to hear it? Okay. Number one, men are being feminized because mothers without fathers are raising them. Now, let me be very clear. And this is, my mother was a single mom a whole bunch of my life. So let me be very careful here. I'm not saying mothers are trying to feminize their sons. I'm saying you can't, you can't become what you haven't seen or heard. The gender confusion of men being raised only by women is helping perpetuate homosexuality. Men are trained out of their ability to protect, provide, and promote. Not because someone's trying to, but just because you can't model what you aren't. Abortion is another side effect of fatherlessness. I told you it's going to get tougher. Because men are being impregnated by... I'm sorry. You know when you run it through your brain and you're like, I, I caught it right before you started laughing. You're like, Let's try it again. Abortion is a major side effect of fatherlessness because women are being impregnated by men, not fathers. Remember, fathers what? They protect, provide, and promote. What do they do? But when you get impregnated by a man and not a father, the man's not protecting you. The absence of fatherhood is creating behavioral tolerance and a lack of discipline. Remember the elephants? A lack of, an, no, sorry. The absence of fatherhood is creating behavioral tolerance and a lack of discipline. Finish this for me. Wait till your father gets home. Does mother discipline? Of course she does. But fathers bring... I'm trying to put to words what we all know. Wait till your father gets home is a role dad plays. I may spank you, but your dad's going to kill you when he gets home. Are you with me? I know we're being kind of funny. But the point is, is that fathers bring this discipline that actually causes sons especially to not be violent. When you take away discipline, you got mom negotiating, but you don't, which we need, we need. Very clear. Like, we could talk all night about homes without mothers, but it's a fatherless generation we live in. So, uh, let me be clear we equally need mothers, but right now we're talking about fathers. Your mother teaches you, a son and a daughter, how to negotiate, how to be a peacekeeper, all those things. But dad says, stop, go to your room, I'll deal with you in a minute. That kind of discipline 
is coming from fathers and daughters and sons need it. <laughs> Number three, men lack confidence in their ability to lead and provide for a family because it's never been modeled for them. Therefore, they delay or reject marriage relationships. And they say things like, I can't find a woman. You can't find a woman? Nope. No women here. I don't know. I just want to slap them right into the next generation. I'm dead serious. Do you know, do you know that there are more women alive on the planet right now than if you added up all the people alive in history? There are more women. There's 3.8 billion women alive right now on the planet. That's more than from the beginning, you know, when, when, when the Big Bang happened. <laughs> Until 100 years ago. Like, literally, literally, if you added all those women up, there's more alive today. Like, this is like fishing at the hatchery. <laughs> I can't find a woman. What is that? I don't know. Number four, men invite boys into manhood through the rite of passage. The rite of passage is a process in which men acknowledge that a boy has become a man. Without the rite of passage, boys struggle growing up as they grow old. But girls experience the rite of passage when they begin their menstrual cycle. When girls begin their menstrual cycle, because they actually have a physical thing that marks them, that they can now reproduce, are you with me? And because typically women, typically mothers, get around them and help them through, what do I do about my menstrual cycle? There's an acknowledgement that the girl has become a man. Are you following me? There's some of your, huh, the girl, gosh, I quit. What is going on here? There is acknowledgement. <laughs> You know, I've preached this twice before. I've never done this. Three times before. There's an acknowledgement that the girl has become a woman. <laughs> you guys got me nervous, man. Are you with me? When a woman, when a girl starts her menstrual cycle, there's an acknowledgement by the women in culture that the girl has become a woman. It's the natural rite of passage which a boy does not have. So consequently, boys grow old, but without men in their lives, they don't grow up. And consequently, what happens, and I'm telling you, I've done so much counseling, and I can tell you this is a common theme. They will say something in a counseling session, men, like, I feel like a boy in a man's world. That is a common statement for a, for a 30, 40-year-old man to say. I feel like a boy in a man's world. Do you know why? Because no one ever invited them into manhood. You know, Jewish culture has bar mitzvahs where they invite them into manhood. Many African tribes have, the, have the, a, a, simple, uh, a similar thing where we invite them into rite of passage, into manhood. But what happens when there's a fatherless generation is there is no man saying, you are now a man. Come in to manhood. And consequently, boys 
grow old, but they don't grow up. Number five, fatherless men relate to women as mothers and sisters, but not as wives and lovers, because they've never observed how a husband relates to a wife. Consequently, they don't pursue lovers, they pursue mothers. Someone who will care for them, not a person who can provide, protect, and promote. Not a person they can provide, protect, and promote. When you're raised in a fatherless home, you've not seen a father relate to a mother, so you don't know how to be a lover. Because you've never seen it modeled. You only know how to relate to mothers and sisters. So consequently, you pursue a mother. You're looking for someone to take care of you. <laughs> I propose it's the whole push towards socialism in our country. It's coming from a feminized culture. Okay, number six. I, I know I, I offended a few people, and it's deeply troubling. Number six. <laughs> I probably am affected more than you think, actually. Number six, in a father's society, authenticity is redefined as being true to your feelings instead of being true to your purpose. Did you get that? Okay, so what do fathers teach men? Number one, how to conquer their fears and not negotiate with their enemies. What does your mother teach you? Negotiate. What does your father teach you? Don't negotiate. This is what we need. We need both. This is my point. We need both. Your mother's like, work it out. Be peaceful. Your father's like, listen, win. <laughs> it doesn't matter how you play the game. We're here to win. We're like, no, let's give trophies to everyone. That's a feminized world. Your father teaches you that life is about winning and losing. Your father teaches you that losing is important to your life. Are you with me? It's like, we want to give everybody trophies, make everybody feel good. That's a feminized culture. A man goes, you win, you lose. Deal with it. It's part of life. And I'm not saying one's wrong and one's right. I'm joking a little. I'm saying we need both. It is in both that we find balance. Are you with me? <laughs> Number two, fathers teach men how to provide for their families. This role gives men purpose, meaning, and identity. Do you remember Acts chapter 10, where Peter sees the sheet come down with unclean animals in it? And what is the decree? What is the decree? Yeah, the decree isn't eat. The decree is kill and eat. <laughs> kill and eat is part of the ecosystem of manhood because men are tasked with providing sustenance for their families. But in a feminized world, provision is trumped by compassion, and vegetarianism is the outcome. <laughs> Listen, I've been waiting for that one all night because I'm in Texas, and I'm like, in California, people are throwing things at me, but in Texas, they're like, in a feminized world, hunters have to say that they hunt for the meat. Why do you hunt? I hunt for the meat. It's not true. Well, I hunt for the meat. No, you don't. You hunt for the kill. You could go to Rayleigh's 
and buy meat for 400 decades for what it costs you for two hunting trips. <laughs> I, know, I know how this goes. Why do people climb a mountain? I don't know. For exercise. No, they don't. Because it's there. Men were born to kill things. <laughs> they were born to conquer things. I, I, it sounds terrible. But it's true. It's true. What? Do you, the Olympics. Anybody watch the Olympics? You run the Olympics, right? You, you, you practice for four years. If you're going to be really good at anything, you're going to practice a lot. Agreed? What are you going to get if you win? Do you know it's not even gold? <laughs> Do you know you just ran for four years, six days a week, you get up early, you practice every day, and when you, if you actually do win, you get a gold medal that ain't even gold. <laughs> Why do you do that? Because it's born in you to win. I'm more than a conqueror. That means I was born to conquer. <laughs> okay. Number three, I, I'm, I'll be done in about 15 minutes. Is that it? all right? Yeah. Okay. Number three, fathers teach men to compete for the prize, fight for their promise, and build for the future. This is how men learn to fight for and aggressively pursue the woman of their dreams. Did you get that? Yeah. So, have you ever read Song of Solomon? <laughs> how does Song of Solomon start? Do you remember? <laughs> Somebody like, which part are you talking about? <laughs> the part we're not supposed to read in church. <laughs> the woman, remember this? He comes to her bedroom. He knocks on the door. Remember this story? And she says, what, girls? Come on, help me. I'm already in bed. I've washed my feet. Do you remember the story? And what does he do? He leaves. And then she wakes up. And she comes to the door, and she says, but my beloved has left. <laughs> you don't even know where this is going. <laughs> and, and look, listen, Psalm 2.8. Listen, my beloved, behold, he is coming. He's climbing on the mountains. He's leaping on the hills. My beloved's like a gazelle, a young stag. He's standing by our wall, behind my wall. He's looking through the windows. He's peering through the lattice. He's a freaking peeping Tom. <laughs> what is he doing? How has she depicted him? He, he's, he's like a gazelle. He's running over the mountains. He's climbing over the hills. And what is she doing? Have you noticed all through the Song of Solomon? She goes, she goes come, come on, come, come on. And he gets close. Oh, go, 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 go. <laughs> Ladies, she's playing hard to get. She's playing hard to get because he, hard to get stimulates his need to win. A woman playing hard to get 
should, <laughs> I got to make sure I get the woman. <laughs> a woman playing hard to get should inspire the masculine need to win, compete for the prize, climb the castle wall. But in a feminized world, a woman has to put a ladder against the wall, castle wall, followed by a safety rope, and then wait at the bottom, show them the way up. I'm trying. I'm so, you know, like women ask me all the time, like, is it okay for me to ask a man out? I'm like, it's the only way you're going to catch one in this environment. <laughs> they ain't fishing. You got to jump in the boat if you want to actually. <laughs> fathers teach men how to pursue a woman. He, fathers teach men the difference between no and no. The ladies wanted me to say that. <laughs> My students like, can you tell our can you tell the men that that no and no are two different things? Because <laughs> no means yes. <laughs> I asked her out and she said no. I said, did she say no? Or did she say no? She said no. Oh, no means yes. <laughs> She's saying, hey, baby, will you come up the castle wall? <laughs> but feminized men, they don't know how to pursue women. Number four, men help others discover their identity. There was one more thing I wanted to say about this, though. Oh, in a feminized world, men don't pursue lovers. They pursue sisters. And then they're like, well, I can't marry her. She's a sister. <laughs> Every woman's a sister to you because you didn't grow up with lovers. Do you know what I mean? You don't know how to relate to a, a lover because all you've had is sisters and mothers. So when you look out, you actually think, I see no lovers. We're like, how about Jane? She's my sister. I couldn't marry her. She's a woman. <laughs> oh, Lord Jesus. <laughs> Number five, fathers teach men how to leave a legacy, promote the well-being of their tribe. I have a couple more, but what's the answer? I, I want to finish with just a couple of things. One is, do you remember when Joseph and Mary lost Jesus? Like they lost the Son of God. <laughs> it's in Luke 2, 41. <laughs> they literally, they like, like they lost the Son of God for three days. Have you seen the Son of God? Oh my God, we lost the Son of God. 
I thought he was with you. <laughs> Do you know why they lost him for three days? Because they thought that he was somewhere else in the wagon train. You know why? Because it takes a village. My point is, what are the solutions? Well, one thing I want to say to single moms everywhere, it takes a village. If you have, if you have boys and girls, and you're a single mom, you gotta get, you got to be part of the village. I, I, I know, it's so simple. It works great on a whiteboard. I've talked to so many moms since this message. But you need a village. Because your boys and your girls, they need fathers in their lives. And if they don't have one, for whatever reason, no shame, but they need male influence. Don't lose the Savior of the world. The last thing I want to say is this. I believe that what Malachi prophesied is happening right now in our generation. I think we're going to see a generation turn in 20 years. In the next 20 years, I believe that prepare for re-entry is the prophetic declaration for this generation. And I believe, I believe the entire movement is going to turn around. You know, so, uh, you know, in the, when, uh, in the day, hippie days, you know, everybody was like, oh, the world's going to hell. And then the Jesus movement happened in the many, middle of the hippie days. And what I'm getting at is that when God has a solution before you have a problem. Christ was crucified before the foundation of the world. Before Adam ever had a problem, God already had an answer. And what I'm getting at is that I actually think that Malachi is right, that there's going to be prophetic revolution. I believe that a prophetic revolution is going to create a vortex where fathers begin to migrate home instinctively. Let me say that again. I believe God is going to prophetically, profoundly, and collaboratively awaken fathers. It's going to happen in sons and daughters too, but I believe that fathers are going to awaken. I believe it's going to be almost this strange. Father been in strain for 15 years, and all of a sudden he wakes up one morning and he goes, I got to go home. I don't know what it is. You know how birds fly south in the winter? I believe God's going to awaken the fathering spirit in men. And what's going to happen is they're going to begin to migrate home, in, in, and it's going to be a movement. It's going to be a movement like the Jesus movement, like the charismatic movement, except for it's going to be global. And men are going to begin to migrate home. And in the midst of their migration, God's going to awaken boys and daughters, daughters and sons. And, and there's going to be a, a profound prophetic reentry that they will write about as a phenomena a hundred years from now. And I'll tell you how our role is going to be, one of our roles, of course, many. But we are going to be tasked with teaching men how to be fathers. And one of the things, I, I had a vision, and I'll finish with this. I had a vision, this is probably five months ago. We were praying in a prayer meeting, on our Thursday morning prayer meeting. And, uh, and, and we were praying, and we, we began to pray Malachi 4. And as we're praying Malachi 4, I suddenly, I suddenly saw my son, Jason, who's over our family uh, ministries, our counseling ministries. 
in a stadium. And he began to call mid-home, Malachi 4, and suddenly the stadium just supernaturally filled with men. And I started texting my son right there. In the meeting. I said, I'm having this. I, I said, I'm currently having this vision. And let me explain to you why I've still seen it. And as I'm done, and he, he's texted right back. Dad, I had that vision just less than two weeks ago. And I believe that, that there's going to be another something like promise keepers, but even more profound. And men are going to fill stadiums. And then they're going to fill homes and fathers are going to, there's, I'll tell you, every, every real father is going to have 40 men, 30 men that they teach and train. It's not going to happen, it's not going to happen in the pulpit. The Lord is going to anoint men who are real fathers. It doesn't matter that they're great teachers, it doesn't matter that they're famous, and suddenly they're going to attract, they're going to attract, uh, in fact, they're going to attract young, young men and young women. And they're going to begin to teach them how to get out of the orphanage, how to stop being bastards, and how to start being sons and daughters. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, it's going to happen almost spontaneously. They're going to begin to sing about it. I, I met with Bethel Music about four months ago, and they wanted me to teach on this thing, and I started teaching, and I said, I'm not supposed to do that, and I started prophesying to them that you're going to write songs, and it's going to be like the, the songs that, uh, uh, of, of, of deliverance. It's going to be like the Underground Railroad songs, and you're going to begin to sing these songs, and it's going to, it's going to, it's going to permeate the hearts of fathers, sons, and daughters, and it's going to be the catalyst to the movement, that you're going to sing songs that actually call men, call men home, call sons home, call fathers home. Amen. Okay. Thanks for staying so long. Can you stand, please? Let me pray for you. Sorry for everyone I offended tonight. You know, that wasn't an eloquent message tonight, but it was true. And I believe that God's doing something in you. And those of you that are single moms, start looking for changes in your kids because you're going to see it. Just like Isaac texted me the other day and said, Papa, I'm not living right. I need to come talk to you. I believe that that is a prophetic declaration. And isn't it funny, after I declared prodigals are coming home, I wasn't even thinking about Isaac. I, I, honest to God, wasn't thinking about Isaac. I wasn't even thinking of Isaac being a prodigal. And then he texts me two hours later, and he ends up getting rocked by God. And I believe that Isaac is a forerunner. I'm talking about my Isaac, is a forerunner to something that's going to happen in your home. Some of you, your husbands are going to come home. You're going to have to work through it. You're going to have to figure out how do I let this man re-enter? How do I trust again? I understand there's lots of issues. This is not a nice, this isn't going to be a pretty movement, but it's going to be profound. Some of you, moms are going to come home because how many know we also have prodigal moms? 
And so, Lord, we just, right now, we just release a fathering mantle over this church. Lord, we pray and we prophesy that by next Sunday, the move will already have begun. But Lord, we pray that you'd prepare us, that you'd prepare us for the reentry, that we would be wise like the prodigal son's father who knew that the whole community had to be involved in welcoming the boy home so that he didn't live in shame. Lord, teach us how to tell the older brother, you need to be happy, your brother's home, your father's home, your sister's home. Lord, teach us how to create a culture of reentry. And we bless every single person here. And we especially bless single moms. We pray that you would give them supernatural courage as these prodigal fathers return, that you would give them wisdom, you would give them understanding, and that there would be true repentance on the part of all the prodigals who come home. Let them come home as the prodigal came home, heart in hand. I have sinned against heaven. I have sinned against you. Let there be true humility so that the process can begin. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Sermon of the Week. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit BethelATX.com.